Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It's either going too far or not far enough. We've lost that moment when America could lead for good purposes in the world and others would follow. So about that North Korea summit, and will we scrap the Iran deal? Do we have any remaining leverage in Syria? Just some of the many pressing questions I'll ask veteran diplomat Jamie Rubin. So do stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's Coming Now. It's happening, as I say this, to the Richmond Institute for Contemporary Art, the ICA at VCU, that gorgeous, gorgeous property on the corner of Belvedere and Broad Streets that's getting all sorts of national press. Just read about this shiny, gleaming facility in the Wall Street Journal. You can come and see Elwood's at the ICA where they'll serve up broad juice, Fresh smoothies, Blanchard's coffee, tea, beer, wine, cider, breakfast, sandwiches, and even vegan wraps open Tuesday through Sunday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And of course, my home away from home, the Elwood Thompson's, where it all started at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me from NPR's Washington, D.C. mothership is Jamie Rubin, who served as chief spokesman for the State Department from 1997 to 2000. He was top policy advisor to State Secretary Madeleine Albright and served as special negotiator during the Kosovo War. You've seen his byline everywhere. The New York Times, I believe the Washington Post, most recently in Politico. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well here in uh, the new Washington, D.C., well, I do. I mean, you're you're not far from Foggy Bottom, your old stomping grounds in the State Department. And to your recollection, from everything you're hearing from career diplomats, from people inside and outside the system, has it ever been this diminished? I think in my memory, um, clearly Rex Tillerson was fired several weeks ago. Um, this idea that Mike Pompeo can switch seamlessly from the CIA to the State Department is increasingly, I think, he, ha- he has the votes on the Hill to get it. But I keep hearing from people uh, across foreign policy writ large that um, we- we've never kind of marginalized the State Department as much as we have in 2018. Well, I think that's a fair statement as of right now, uh, the lack of appointees in all the crucial positions. You know, the way the State Department works, there are 50 to 100 issues around the world. And even if uh, a Trump White House can stay on top of two or three, there are another 50 and 60 that need to be dealt with. And the Foreign Service can't really speak to all these other issues because there are no Trump appointees at the Africa Bureau, at all the, you know, the regional bureaus, which are the heart and soul of the State Department. So ambassadors and, and uh, you know, representatives of the United States around the world are sort of left reading press conferences to try to get a sense of what the current administration's policies are. And and that's pretty demoralizing for people who believe that, you know, they signed up and worked all those years to try to advance America's interest when they're reduced to repeating what the press secretary says. Well, we've always heard from the outside there's been just this this natural competition between, say, defense and state and the CIA for the president's ear. And in this case, I'm trying to think about that in the backdrop of everything that's about to happen with the North Korea summit, something as un- unprecedented. I mean, imagine telling yourself this just a few years ago, Donald Trump meeting, you know, the Master Kim in you know, somewhere halfway between here and Pyongyang, whatever it is, the situation with the Iran deal and a lot of fear and loathing about that, obviously Syria, um, where uh, the the previous state secretary, John Kerry, crafted what we thought was a, a, you know, foolproof deal to take chemical weapons out of the country. There's a lot going on right now for it to be on some sort of, um, you know, figure it out autopilot. 
Well, yes, and and I think it goes deeper than that. Um, for better or worse, the people around uh, the current president uh, are, by and large, come from what I would call the military community. Either they are former generals like uh, the chief of staff or the secretary of defense, or they're the real generals who continue to play an important role in our foreign affairs. Even Mike Pompeo uh, was a West Point graduate who was in the military and then switched over to Congress. So you don't really have a, a civilian, a diplomatic, a kind of a grand uh, notion of what America's role in the world should be, but rather you have a, what I would call a, a narrow uh, view. The military is a great institution, and I'm no, by no means diminishing it, but they really serve one tool of our foreign policy, the use of force. And if they're not going to uh, uh, use force, they would say no. So you have a kind of a yes-no foreign policy where the military is playing such a crucial role and all the other tools of our foreign affairs are now uh, not in the hands of, of professionals, in the hands of people who've thought this way over the years. And as you point out, we're about to have the ultimate uh, diplomatic event of our lifetimes, the president of the United States meeting, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, the leader of a hermit kingdom, as we used to call it, who's never really been outside his country, except, I guess, in school. And the idea of negotiating the end of the Korean War is now on the table of an armistice, the uh, denuclearization of the peninsula. These are things that take into account China's interests, Russia's interests, South Korea, North Korea, obviously the United States, Japan. These are big, big, big geopolitical questions. And what I worry about is that we have not the tools for the president to get all the best possible advice going in. Whether or not he listens is, of course, a whole other question. And one of the reasons the State Department is so marginalized is because, let's face it, this president uh, tries to make these decisions by himself. He's said publicly he doesn't need any advisors. He can do it all by himself. Mm -hmm. And that tends to marginalize the the hundreds and hundreds of people who spent their lives studying uh, the various regions to try to be able, in a crisis, in an important moment, to give the president the benefit of that wisdom. You know, crawl me back to the first hundred days of the Trump administration for a minute. And this is is, is a bit of postscript on, uh, you know, Rex Tillerson, who was ousted from the State Department last month. Um, what were what were you thinking when he was appointed to be the country's chief diplomat? I mean, I understand on the one hand, here you have an oil man, uh, a, a very reputable Texan. When he was appointed in 2006, Exxon itself was was almost, uh, you know, this own, its own nation in terms of uh, economy. Uh, the world's sixth largest company by revenue. He knew uh, the various heads of state, the, the, the counterparties in OPEC. He could be a decent proxy for a top diplomat, even though he didn't have true foreign service training. I mean, Exxon, as you, as you gather, is like a country unto itself. Why do you think that appointment happened? And why would a person like this accept that role when there was nothing but risk ultimately to his reputation? There didn't seem to be much upside. Well, I can't speak for Mr. Tillerson personally, but I do understand precisely what you're saying. He had a skill set that is not incompatible with that of being Secretary of State. He understood the world as a uh, CEO of a world uh, oil company that had negotiated deals in every continent on the planet. Um, but he, he lacked a couple of crucial things, and one was 
he wasn't used to oversight. You know, when you're working for Exxon and you have such a successful company, yes, you might have a board of directors, you might have the annual general meeting, but essentially you are uh, an executive in the true sense of the word. You're doing exactly what you think is right, and unless something goes terribly wrong, nobody is looking over your shoulder. However, in Washington, even under a normal administration, uh, a secretary of state in the modern era faces a multiplicity of power centers. There's the media, there's the Congress, there's the permanent bureaucracy, um, and then uh, there's the White House, obviously, the Pentagon, all these different constituencies playing into it. And what I don't think Tillerson counted on, and I don't think anyone could have fully predicted, is the extent to which uh, President uh, Trump, who, let's face it, has never operated in the international arena in any serious way other than going to these kind of marketing shows around the world, decided that he knew best on matters such as North Korea. And his inconsistency is obvious. He was criticizing Rex Tillerson for thinking that one could negotiate with North Korea, and now he's going to have the ultimate negotiation with North Korea. So I don't think Tillerson was prepared to have someone uh, undercutting him in that way, and then being a strong-willed, uh, you know, successful executive, I don't think he uh, expected to have the president undercutting him and to be so dismissive of him. As uh, it turned out, Tillerson wasn't really suited to be uh, number two <laughs> and or number four or number five, depending on how you count it, because of President uh, Trump's, uh, uh, you know, respect for the secretary of defense and some of the other figures. Tillerson was way down on the on the totem pole. And I don't think he had a clue of how to operate in in that environment when you had these other constituencies, the media, the press, the academics and and the critics that that he was not used to at, at Exxon. In terms of some of the things around the globe that keep us up at night, Jamie, um, top of mind really is Syria. And I keep thinking back to the red line of 2013 and the Obama administration uh, and, and Secretary of State John Kerry stepping away from that. Or maybe in, in hindsight, 2020 historical hindsight, they say we blinked. Um, we, we didn't, we didn't um, kind of vindicate and validate and stand by our own red line as evidenced by the fact that there's very compelling evidence that uh, Assad has used chemical weapons again on his people both last year and he faced a military strike and again this year. Um, is that now kind of looked at as a failure of diplomacy, as a failure of the State Department? Well, I think at its core, it was a failure of the president at the time. I mean, let's face it, the president set out this idea that chemical weapons was going to be the red line was the term of art, but was going to be the one thing that would generate an American response. And I think the big failure came when uh, his advisors had all recommended that he follow through on that uh, threat. And then he took a walk around the whatever it is, the, the White House with one of his aides, and that aide didn't do his job. The job of a chief of staff at that moment is to tell the president, I know you don't want to do this, but there are the following six, seven, eight, nine, ten consequences for the United States and our government and you personally if you don't follow through with this. And by every account that I've heard of that crucial walk, uh, the discussion wasn't about the, the potential negative consequences of not following through on this. And you got to remember, this was before the Russians even entered Syria. Mm. I believe 
uh, that one of the ironies today is that Donald Trump is pursuing uh, President Obama's policy, but just pursuing it a little more seriously. His policy was, number one, don't use chemical weapons. Number two, I want to destroy ISIS. And otherwise, Syria is going to unfold without my involvement, the U.S. involvement. And the Trump administration, in the case of ISIS, has sent in ground troops that President Obama wasn't willing to combat troops. And in the case of chemical weapons, has twice now used force when President Obama wasn't. But the policy is exactly the same. Stay out of it, except for these two things, ISIS and chemical weapons. And just to let me finish for a second, Robin, I don't think um, we realize and President Obama will ever really appreciate or admit the cross the board comprehensive consequences when the world expects the United States, which is the backer of all these treaties and the ally of, of last resort for all these countries, and whose word is taken seriously despite all that we've been through over the last 20 years, when we walk away from that, uh, the cascade effect has been dramatic. And I just use the most simple example. Had President Obama, in my opinion, done what President Trump did, namely launch 59 cruise missiles, I don't believe Russia would have ever entered Syria, ever, because they would have regarded it as some place that the United States cared about. And with Russia not in Syria, the world would have unfolded very differently on the ground in Syria. And frankly, I don't think Bashar Assad would be in the position that he is in today. And the world wouldn't face a Syria that is going to be run by Russia and Iran. But here's a question. And that's were we, dangerous. Were we, were we kind of very quietly and secretly worried about a Syria that wasn't going to be run by an enemy you do know? Like a strong man. I, now in 2020 hindsight, maybe a lot of people would have preferred an Iraq under Saddam Hussein because, you know, the, 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 the sewage systems operated. The buses ran on time. There wasn't chaos. There wasn't this uh, huge vacuum of, of, of uh, you know, infighting and a country torn into three and 50 parts. Were we so shell-shocked by the experience, not just in Iraq, but also Libya, which seemed to have been easy pickings, right? You don't let Gaddafi massacre his own people, and it turns out what filled that vacuum when they killed Gaddafi was worse, potentially, than what Gaddafi was. Well, I I know this argument. Um, I heard it a lot, primarily, uh, I'm sorry to say, from President Trump through the campaign when I was working with uh, Hillary Clinton. And it applied to Libya, as you say, it applied to Iraq, it applied to Syria. It was the idea that these dictators, as bad as they are, at least create stability. And they create a sort of a, a devil-you-know uh, uh, situation. And they are that is better than the alternative of chaos and extreme uh, violence and war. And on the surface, that argument is, sounds fine. Uh, but in each case, it's slightly different. And I think people have to remember that the United States doesn't decide when a country goes through a civil war. The people of Syria decided to rise up and risk their life and their families' lives by the hundreds of thousands because they wanted to confront the leader they were living with. We didn't do that. That was the Arab Spring that did that. Now, having that start... I don't think it's conceivable in the case of Libya or the case of Syria that we would respond by saying, well, we understand the feelings of all these hundreds of thousands of people who want freedom and basic rights, but 
it's probably going to be better off if the dictator stays in power. It's inconceivable the United States could take that view. And frankly, although I know it's conventional wisdom today, I don't believe that Libya is worse off today than it would have been had uh, Gaddafi been allowed to slaughter uh, the people as he promised to do so. We don't know what would have happened. It's always easy to say everything would have been fine but for the Western uh, intervention. Frankly, my concern about that was always... Why would the United States intervene in this crazy idea called, uh, I think it was called leading from behind, where we would let the British and the French do it and we just stand back and give them a few extra weapons? Well, that was the problem. The United States is not a very good leader from behind, and the British and the French weren't very good leaders from the front. Had we, the United States been involved, I strongly believe there would have been a diplomatic follow-up. The rebels would have been more willing to contemplate peacekeeping forces or United Nations activity, and maybe the chaos wouldn't have been there. But with the United States taking this backseat role, Britain and France led us down this path that I understand people are regarding as chaos. I would, however, suggest that if you ask the Libyans, who are the ultimate arbiters of what is right or not right for their country, there's still very few of them who would prefer to have uh, Qaddafi running the country. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Jamie Rubin. He was Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs under President Clinton, the second term, in 97 to 2000. Uh, you mentioned Iran, uh, which always seems to be the 20-ton elephant in the room in this conversation and currently kind of the nexus of, of balance of power rejiggering in the Middle East. Um, Iran, if you, if, you know, you asked me and I was in Manhattan um, uh, in, in, in um, you know, 2003 and the buildup to the Iraq war and everything that was happening in Afghanistan, the conventional wisdom back then was that Tehran, the, the revolutionary regime, would not be able to survive Saddam being taken out on one side and the Taliban regime in Afghanistan being taken out. It was a, just a matter of time until the Iranian street or somebody rose and, and, and that kind of wave swept that geostrategically critical country in the middle. You fast forward 15 years later, and in fact, its sphere of influence has been greatly increased. It's no secret that they love having the regime that they do now in, in Iraq, which is a Shi'i regime that's, that's more sympathetic to Tehran. They have a clear sphere of influence in Syria, where the IRGC and Solem Qasimani were critical in kind of holding back uh, the rebels and ISIS. Uh, how do you look at Iran right now as a, you know, is it, is it a, is it a preferable enemy? Is it one that maybe the Obama administration took a bet and said that we're better off negotiating with them and offering them a carrot than a stick? Yeah, it's a, a very important question because, um, right now president Trump basically faces a choice. If he pursues the path he's been taking about Syria he will be ceding uh, to the Iranian government and the military officials you mentioned, uh, Soleimani, the Quds Force, the IRGC, the most extremist elements of the Iranian government. And remember, as you know well, there are many different strains of government in Iran. The uh, military uh, is part of the most extreme, most aggressive part of the government. They now have essentially a free reign from the Mediterranean all the way to the Persian Gulf, they have Hezbollah in Lebanon. They have Bashar Assad and all of the bases that you mentioned in Syria. They have a friendly government in Iraq, and then they have obviously Iran. You take 
just a simple pencil on any map by anyone and you see that something profound has changed in the Middle East and the big winner is the Iranian government. Now that government has gone through ups and downs since the period you mentioned back in the early 2000s at that time allegedly they were prepared to negotiate a, a, a some form of of detente with the United States and that was not pursued by the Bush administration they got they got access of evil consideration that's right and and frankly um, you know that was a time when president bush thought the united states was so ascendant and so powerful and able to you know have governments rise and fall at our uh, will and whim and that was the moment when uh, we vastly overstated our not our power so much as our willingness to engage abroad president bush um, took the United States far beyond what its people were willing to do abroad in the Iraq war. And but Jamie, obviously... I mean, engage with who in Tehran? You always know that you're dealing with a multi-headed animal over there. There's always, you know, there was Khatami uh, during your time uh, in the Clinton administration. And people talk about this new grand detente in 97 and 98. And there was the, the Ahmadinejad years and now Rouhani. But these guys are all trumped, pardon the expression, by the supreme leader. And you get 50 kind of different voices emanating from Tehran. And of course, everybody wants to throw out the, you know, Bill Crystal-like platitudes of, you know, we have to support the Iranian people and tell them we're on our side. But to what end? Well, I, that had, question had several parts to it, so let me unpack it a little Which bit. Which is as confusing as yeah, Iran has several parts to it. <laughs> That's right. I think we learned that in the uh, joint agreement with Iran between the Western powers, the United States and Iran, that it is possible to negotiate with the Iranian government, that when they are united, uh, when they are agreed on a course of action, in this case, giving up. Uh, their nuclear enrichment program. Remember, right now they have put uranium, uh, enriched uranium under seal. They have destroyed facilities. They have uh, reduced the operation of their uh, centrifuges in a dramatic way, cutting back dramatically the program that we were worried about just a few years ago. And that has been the subject of a negotiation and an agreement. So you can negotiate with them when they are united. Uh, the question always is, to what extent is the government of Iran united on a policy? And I think on the nuclear uh, agreement, the trade of essentially sanctions relief for reduction in, uh, in the enrichment of, of nuclear materials, we were able to strike such a deal. Whether we can on other subjects, we'll find out someday. Uh, President Trump would love us to be able to tell them what to do when it comes to missiles and, and their operations in Syria and Lebanon, et cetera. And we haven't had that negotiation. But again, I think you can negotiate with them. I don't believe that the people of Iran and you know those who, who know the country on the ground better than I may have a different view. I don't believe the people of Iran are yet ready in large enough numbers to put their lives at risk because unfortunately the government has many tens of thousands of people who are prepared to shoot their own fellow Iranians. And that's what all of these revolutions in the region have shown us. There's some horrific calculation between the number of people willing to go out on the street and put their lives at risk and the number of people in a regime in power that are willing to shoot them. And when it was the case like Egypt, there were very, very few Egyptian uh, military at the time in the uh, Tahrir Square example who were prepared to shoot their fellow Egyptians and Mubarak fell. 
In the case of uh, Syria, you had the opposite, where there were hundreds of thousands of people willing to put their lives at risk in Syria, but unfortunately we had an army full of uh, the Syrian military aided by Iran and aided by Russia that were prepared to shoot their own citizens. Right now, I think the Iranian people have not made a decision to come up in the, in the sufficient millions you would need because of the large number of Iranian security forces who are prepared to shoot their own citizens. So those who talk about revolution there, I don't think are serious. I don't think that's a serious prospect today. Down the road, who knows? But in the meantime, we, there is a government to negotiate with. Uh, the question is whether they're willing to make a deal with us. And right now, they're in the ascendancy. And President Trump has not confronted the fact that his Syria policy today, by staying away from the question of what happens to Syria, is giving Iran a, a basically a gigantic land bridge from the Persian Gulf all the way to the Mediterranean, talk all to me, across well, the talk Middle to East. Talk to me about the Saudis' fear and loathing toward that. You've seen various interviews. There was a big Jeff Goldberg interview with the leader of Saudi Arabia in saying, you know, comparing, uh, I think, the supreme leader or the leadership to Hitler. Uh, there, there seems to be a desire to build some sort of Sunni firewall to that land bridge. I don't know if I'm mixing metaphors here, but certainly something feels like it has changed, especially uh, since the, 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 the snapback kind of coup in Egypt, where Israel and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the United States seem to be more on the same page, especially vis-a-vis -vis Iran, than they have in decades. I think that's true. That's absolutely true. Remember, the first person who raised this, he, he was called, I think it was the uh, King of Jordan talked about the the uh, the arc of Shia power across the Middle East, and people thought he was uh, overstating the case. And there is that problem. Jordan, Egypt, the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the other Gulf states are unified in their concern about Iranian aggression. And I think we have to be clear, it is aggression. They are seeking to control and influence uh, fellow uh, Shiite, but in other countries. They are seeking to control and influence Iraq through the Shiite government. They're obviously seeking to uh, uh, influence Bashar Assad in Syria. Now, you've pointed to the reaction to that. I think that both leaders in uh, Saudi Arabia and in Iran tend to exaggerate the significance of the other in much the same way it's beginning to sound like Israelis and Palestinians and Indians and Pakistanis and Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Every problem in the region is the fault of the other guy's leaders. Well, part of the problem... Nigerians is, and Ghanaians, too. If you, if Nigerians you and Ghanaians, if you want to keep going. Rwanda, you know, Tutsis and uh, sure, sure. Uh, Hutus. And, and I think the Saudi leadership tends to exaggerate the extent to which it's Iran's actions that are causing the problem when the truth is that it was Russia, it was the United States staying out of Syria, it was uh, Saudi's unwillingness to put uh, forces on the ground in support of the, uh, the, the rebels on the ground. The Saudis talk a great game about the dangers in their part of the world, but the only place they've ever seemed to really put it to use was in driving tanks into the Bahrain streets to protect the, the king there and in sending troops, not 
not even troops, air power into Yemen. I think it's really up to the Saudi government to uh, show that it's going to do more than just use false analogies like comparing somebody to Hitler. There was one Adolf Hitler. He killed six million Jews and many, many million other people. And it's not useful in the today's world to use phony analogies like that. It's not serious historically. But more importantly, Saudi Arabia has rarely been willing to put its citizens' military uh, at risk. Where are the Saudi troops? They talk about it a lot. There's always some rumor the Saudis are prepared to send forces somewhere. But frankly, the only forces I'm aware of those were sent into Bahrain and obviously some air power in Yemen. So when Saudi Arabia is prepared to, to do more to confront Iran in places like Syria... Uh, then maybe the United States um, uh, can respond. I do think President Trump has a decision to make. I think he has to decide whether his current policy, which essentially uh, leaves the future of that part of the Middle East to Iran, is going to continue. Because if he does, he's giving uh, the regime he says he's most worried about a land bridge from one end of the Middle East to the other. Uh, because of its influence in Syria. Does he punt on the Iran deal or does he nix it? I mean, especially with potentially Pompeo coming in as state secretary? Well, I certainly hope he keeps the agreement. It would be foolish in the extreme to give up something where we're getting so many advantages of taking off the table, at least for now and for many years to come, the prospect of an Iranian nuclear weapon. Imagine if Iran now had nuclear weapons and it had this power uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in and in Iran itself, across the Middle East with nuclear weapons. That's what we're facing if President Trump pulls out of the agreement. Iran will restart its enrichment program potentially and again be on the verge of having a nuclear weapon. Why would we do that just because he thinks he could get a better deal? He hasn't shown a great ability to get a better deal in any of these cases we've heard we're going to get a better deal. I've heard that over and over again, and I'm worried that our national security, the national security of our allies in the region, including Saudi Arabia, including Israel, everybody talks about what a great negotiator they're going to be, whether it's Trump or the Saudis or the Israelis. They all imagine they could have gotten some greater deal with the Iranian government, and I don't see it. The Europeans don't see it. We're going to have uh, the German and French leaders coming to Washington. I just hope they are persuasive with President Trump, because if we pull out of that agreement, it will be one of the great diplomatic blunders of the modern era. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jamie Rubin. He was former chief spokesman at the State Department um, under the Clinton administration between 97 and 2000. Before we get into North Korea, and I really like the byline you had in Politico recently, uh, can Trump handle Kim Jong-un? Very provocative story, and it's top of mind right now. Um, I do want to ask you, in light of the things we talked about, uh, especially in Syria with the chemical weapons response, what happened to multilateralism? What happened to this idea that it's not just the United States that should be expected to strike, but that when things bordering you know, on genocide happen, that there has to be uh, a coordinated international response? Well, you're asking a very, very important question. It and it's like it's me. like a meaning of life question because, I mean, the UN, does anyone really take the United Nations seriously anymore? Well, not, not as long as Russia has a veto. And that's really the problem. Remember, even back in the late 90s, uh, when we did something like Kosovo, 
I felt we had the support of the world. We had legitimacy because so many countries in NATO and around the world supported what the United States and NATO countries did to confront Milosevic and prevent the murder of hundreds of thousands of Albanians in Kosovo. The Russians were going to veto the resolution, so we didn't put it in there. And that limited the ability of the uh, military action to be fully legal in some in international legal sense. That's the problem with the United Nations Security Council. We have on uh, the council the uh, Russian government that today is willing to ally itself with those who are undermining our world rather than promoting uh, and protecting our world. So where do we stand? You know, I, it pains me to no end that the kind of leadership America showed in the late 90s when, when I, I know it sounds self-serving, but I think it's objectively true, when the United States could lead and others would follow and we would uh, take action, but we would have a lot of allies to help us do it. I think we lost that for many reasons, but certainly at the mega level, we lost it because President Bush pursued a unilateralist policy, which imagined that everything could be done by the United States alone. And we learned in Iraq that that wasn't true. And then, frankly, uh, not in the same way, we learned during the Obama era that the United States shrinked from its responsibilities and came up with cockamamie notions like, you know, leading from behind or staying out of it, uh, declaring that Syria is somebody else's problem. We can't do everything, but when the United States doesn't lead, we've seen uh, the damage that occurs in places like Syria. I don't believe that it would have been this bad had President Obama in the early years done a defined and limited uh, intervention by the United States. I believe Turkey would have supported it. I believe many of our European allies would have supported it. Obviously, countries like Saudi Arabia and the others would have supported it, would have had a multilateral component, but President Obama wasn't interested. Uh, so it's either going too far or not far enough. We've lost that moment when America could lead for, for good purposes in the world and others would follow. You're very close to Hillary Clinton. Does she regret not being more forceful with that when she was state secretary extraordinaire in the Obama administration? Well, I have n never put the question to her quite that way, but I, I understand what you're asking. And the only thing I would say to that is that you know, it's very, very rare uh, in the uh, national security decision-making process, although it's quite common under President Trump, it used to be rare to have a president overrule his entire team. And there was one of the issues with Syria when uh, Hillary Clinton and David Petraeus at the CIA had developed a plan to assist the S Syrian rebels. And the entire team, Leon Panetta at the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor possibly may have stood aside. I'm not sure. But the entire team was in favor of it. And President Obama rejected it. So does she wish she could have done more? Does she wish the United States had done more? I'm sure she wishes the United States had done more. I certainly wish the United States had done more. Um, but... We need to remember that we are where we are, and we all need to ask the question of staying out of it as much as everybody wants to, as, much, as easy as that sounds and as sensible as it sounds, would that be worse 
than a limited involvement that prevented Iran and Russia from ruling the roost in Syria and thus ruling the roost across the Middle East. I think that would be far worse. And Jamie, in taking me to the situation with North Korea here, I have to paraphrase the talking heads. You know, And you may ask yourself, well, how did we get here? Um, Donald Trump and this grand summit. I don't know if it's Reykjavik. I don't know if it's, you know, the the, the, the global historic thing that our grandchildren will be reading about in, in 60, 70 years. But for better or for worse, he's going to be meeting with the leader of North Korea, the hermit nation. Um, you did write about this for Politico recently. You're wondering if we know what we're getting into. Yes, it is bold to go in with not so many strings attached. But um, what is the what is the kind of the tradecraft here? Look, um, I don't think anybody, uh, including President Trump and including President Kim, uh, knows what's going to happen. This is a real uh, head-scratcher in terms of being able to predict the result. I think there are two big issues from an American perspective that we need to be ready for. One, uh, and that's the question of, of China and South Korea, sorry, China and North Korea being on the same side in discouraging America's military role in the region. We've heard that Mr. Kim is not going to insist that America pull out of South Korea in exchange for denuclearization, and that's encouraging. But I have a feeling uh, he is going to push for some change in the American military alliance with South Korea, which is very important to us. And oddly, on the question of our alliance with South Korea, China switches sides. And this is where it gets complicated. China is our ally on denuclearizing North Korea, but it's our adversary on the question of America's role in the region. Mm -hmm. They want us to have as small a role as possible. So to be able to be successful at a summit like this, you have to understand the uh, complexities of China's dual role. Similarly, President Trump is going to have to get used to the idea that incentives are important too. He's been very good at disincentives, sanctions, trade wars, the use of military power. He seems to have a comfort level with using those tools. But there's another tool, and those are called carrots, incentives. The one time we had any progress with North Korea was in the 90s for a period of time. They had put their plutonium program under ice, literally under seal of the International Atomic Energy Agency for many, many years. And they did so in exchange for uh, direct assistance, both um, uh, actual fuel oil and the prospect of a, of a new uh, nuclear reactor that didn't pose a, a risk of proliferation. Those are incentives. That is aid. That is assistance. That is economic support. Mm. And I don't believe that we will get any uh, result that we will all support here in the United States um, in terms of denuclearization unless the United States and South Korea, uh, possibly with Chinese support, come up with a package that gives the North Koreans something. And it's worth a lot to us to eliminate the risk of a nuclear North Korea uh, forevermore. A country, remember, that not just threatens its neighbors and the world, but has shown an, a, a ruthless willingness to sell its most dangerous weapons to the most dangerous people. I don't want to see the day when a North Korean nuclear weapon is sold to someone who would actually use it in the Western world. And we face that risk, let alone the risk of North Korea's uh, international intercontinental ballistic missile with nuclear weapons on it. Those are the big risks. And we need to be realistic 
and hard-nosed and ask ourselves really hard questions. Isn't it worth uh, carrots in addition to sticks? Isn't it work, worth incentives, assistance to that country if we can really and genuinely and verifiably eliminate those risks? Were you surprised to hear that Monk, Mike Pompeo and kind of this interregnum between leaving the CIA and and ostensibly getting the nod to run the State Department, went to North Korea and met with the leader? I mean, certainly I wouldn't have predicted it, but when you think about it, it seems quite sensible. The CIA has a, a, a channel with the North Korean intelligence um, service, and that dialogue between the United States and Pyongyang has always been quite tricky. We used to have what was called the New York Channel, which was the a North Korean uh, ambassador to the United Nations. But getting uh, uh, messages straight to the top is always a, a question uh, with North Korea. So we knew, knowing that the CIA has that channel, that's part of the package. But the most important reason that it makes sense is because, for better or for worse, President Trump trusts Mike Pompeo to do his business for him. And he's, uh, you know, I know senators and the Foreign Relations Committee, Democratic senators are concerned that he won't stand up to the president at crucial times. And I have a similar concern, but we have to acknowledge that President Trump trusts him. And that is the most important thing for a chief diplomat in our world, whether he's called the secretary of state or whether he's called the CIA director, so that when you're meeting with a foreign adversary, that you're actually speaking for the president, and Pompeo does. You know, I wish I, I wish I could kind of talk to you for three hours. There's so many things going on in the world right now. We only have you for so long, and in the few minutes I have left, specifically on North Korea, I always try to ask people this question, and I, I get so many different answers. Otto Warmbier, the UVA student who uh, you know was released back in the United States after he was held in North Korea, uh, was found to be injured and died. Even assuming some modicum of rationality, why would the North Koreans allow that to happen? Why would they potentially bludgeon a person, make him so ill that he's returned, you know, all 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 but dead to the United States? I don't understand how that happens, kind of in a year or two before these countries get together and potentially sign something massive. Well, I guess the simple answer is, I'm not sure. But if I were to speculate, this is a brutal regime. I mean, let's remember that there are genuine gulags in North Korea with hundreds of thousands of people, families who have been sent off to brutal conditions of minimal uh, housing, minimal shelter, minimal food. Yeah, but he's, minimal held, food. he's held Americans and Westerners. I'm getting as, there. You know. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. This is a brutal regime. The brutality goes from top to bottom. When you're a brutal regime, sometimes you can make mistakes of brutality even when you're intending not to. So who knows what guard did what to him? Who knows how this would have happened in a system? But when they make mistakes in North Korea, they make mistakes on the side of brutality. And that's because it's a brutal regime. So I'm sure that the person who who did that may have gotten in a lot of trouble because it doesn't serve North Korea's interest. I understand that. But not everything is intentional. It's possible that this was a mistake. Did you accompany Madeleine Albright there? I didn't. I had left the government by then. 
And um, I, I just wonder, looking at South Korea's economic success over the past 30, 40 years, it's one of the stories that's not told as much as kind of somebody goes from being a frontier country, an obscure economy, to being an emerging market that had all of its hiccups in the 90s and whatnot. And today is a world-class economy. You talk about brands like you know LG and Hyundai and the American military presence there. And I think it's the seventh or eighth largest economy on the planet. You know, in closing, is there is there any hope that these Koreas unite in this century and reunite? And how would that begin to be done? It must be so unwieldy, much more so than West Germany and East Germany. Yes, I think you're right to to use the German model as a as a starting off point. Um, I don't think people expected the Berlin Wall to fall when it did, and they certainly wouldn't have predicted how smoothly. The two countries united, and successfully they united to the point that uh, very quickly Germany became one country and a world power. Um, I don't expect, even if in the best possible circumstances, that it would be possible for that to happen in between South and North. Um, and I think part of the reason is that North Korean really is isolated in a way that East Germany never was. And so we really don't know what's going on in that place. We have a lot of indicators. People come in and out and they give you a, a shard of information about what it's like in the capital. But I'm talking about broadly across the country. We, we don't really know how bad it is. And I suspect it's worse than we can possibly imagine, really. And so I, I don't see that happening smoothly. I think if it's going to happen... I'm sorry to say I think it's more likely to happen in some – that is unification in some chaotic way in the face of some regime-altering uh, uh, event in the north uh, as opposed to a negotiation between the president of South Korea and uh, Mr. Kim that yields uh, some unification. I just don't see those two regimes – uh, melding into one, it doesn't seem possible to me. Close us out. What should be? What should we be reading? What should our listeners be following up on that you think might get short shrifted? I ask every guest this. Well, I don't think it's so much of of a topic that isn't discussed. I think it's a topic that we haven't figured out how to talk about and think about, and that is Russia. Um, I think partisanship has made it very, very hard to talk about Russia realistically. I think everyone has gotten all focused on the story of the uh, 2016 elections. I think it's been very, very hard for people to absorb the changing uh, policies of Russia across the board. And I think if we were to sit down and talk about Russia's policies without respect to the 2016 election and what they did or didn't do and just look at the specifics of the assassinations, the invasions of other countries, the cyber attacks, um, the uh, fact that uh, that progress within Russia towards uh, economic uh, prosperity and integration with the world is not now seen by the true powers inside that regime as a something important. They don't care about that anymore. They have a different uh, mindset. And I think we haven't come to grips with the extent to which uh, Putin and Putinism and all the people that support him have um, have changed uh, Russia to the detriment. We know what communist Russia was. We don't know how to think about Putin's Russia 
and its role in our world and how to deal with it because we haven't really changed things that much in the West since Putin has, uh, has posed this threat. Maybe we're spending a few percentage points more across the board, but we haven't taken into account the extent to which Putin's Russia threatens our world and what are we going to do about it. We're just not confronting that. Jamie Rubin, Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs under President Clinton. I cannot thank you enough. It's been such a joy, and I do hope you'll come back on, whether in London, New York. I know you're all over the planet at all times. Thank you very much, Robin. I've enjoyed it, too. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. You can message me as well about sponsoring. We are bilateral conciliatories, high commissioners to quality listening, week in, week out. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Thank you.